0: well i happened to be standing on the edge of a cliff and i was just really just a a foot or so away a step away and uh, if we got the picture of that i'll show you the actual cliff i was standing on i was hiking up in jackson hole with some friends and and one of the guys who has a place up there and lives up in that area was sharing about this ledge and and as we were walking, he'd point to it and goes, yeah, we go up there. My kids go, my eight-year-old jumps off it and, you know, all these things. And I'm going, cool. I, and I was really excited. I can't wait to get up there. I'm going to jump off there. I wanted to be the first one to do it. So we make our way up there. We get up there. And I'm standing at the edge. And I look down. And I'm thinking, your eight-year-old jumps off this thing? And as I'm standing there, there's this flash a blur this guy comes running by me and jumps and i watch him and he goes splash and he comes up and he's all excited and this is wow this is great come on in so i took a step a little bit closer now i'm a step from the edge and another guy came up behind me and put his hand on my shoulder and said um are you gonna jump yeah i'm sure i will and uh What's holding me back? I, I, just give me a minute. And he just pfft, over the edge, flash, and yeah, they're both down there now, just having a blast. And I'm standing on the edge, and I'm, I, I'm standing there with fear, afraid to make this jump. My faith, which was so strong moments ago, is faltering. And so I'm standing But one thing that was really interesting to me, I truly believe I would have stood on that edge and walked away if it wasn't for two people going ahead of me. And their faith acted out, began to encourage my faith and shame me a little bit. Um, and I think it's interesting how We can see someone do something and act in such a way that it gives you even hope that maybe you can do that. Well, as you look at these stories of Matthew, one of the things that's really interesting is as I was, you know, saying, God, what are you what do you want me to teach on? And as as I was reading through my quiet times back last fall and I read through chapters eight and nine, I was struck with this this these stories one after another of healing of people who stepped out in faith and went to the edge and jumped, and they jumped into the arms of Jesus, so to speak, with what was on their heart. And God met the need of their heart. And these, these stories, one after another, are meant, in, in a sense, to encourage us to come to a point where we will put whatever it is in our heart fully into the hands of Jesus and say, Jesus, here's, here it is, and we trust you with it. Probably one of the hardest things for me to learn throughout my life is I, I so often want to come to Jesus and say, this is exactly what I want you to do. But to come to him and recognize he can do exactly what maybe my heart wants, but I give it to him and I step out in faith and I trust him to do it. And these people do it. And, and in this case, in each particular case, it's this power of God expressed in their faith, making a difference in their life. So you see these stories beginning in chapter eight, verses one through four, a leper comes to Jesus and his question is really simple. God, are you willing? Jesus, are you willing? And Jesus, representing God's heart fully, can hardly let him finish. And he said, of course I'm willing. That's the nature of God towards those who come to him in humility with need. And then you go to verse 10. This guy who's not even a Jew, he's a centurion who's who's outside the faith. He comes on behalf of a servant of his and comes to Jesus and, and says, Jesus, will you do it? And he says, You know what, Jesus, you can stay right here. You don't even have to come home with me. By what you say, if you say it, I'm sure it's done, because I'm a man under authority, and Jesus is astonished. Only two times in Scripture it says, Jesus is astonished. Both of them non Jews. And he says, Truly, I have not found anyone. In Israel, who can leap with such faith? Can trust me. And then, verse 25, they're in the boats, and the disciples at this time, Jesus is showing the incredible power that he has again and again. So the disciples should be learning something. They're in this boat, Jesus is in the back sleeping, a storm comes up, and, and as it's beginning to throw them and toss them to such a place that they fear their lives, they yell out, Lord, save us. Jesus stands up and he says to them, You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? You see how faith is in each of these? And in chapter 9, verse 2, some men come to Jesus with this guy who's a paralytic, and they bring him to Jesus through the roof, lay him down before him on a mat, and it says in Matthew, and he writes this, Matthew says, when Jesus saw their faith, And then chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus is walking along. Jairus comes up and says, Would you do something? Heal my daughter. And his way, he's interrupted by a woman who has been ill for over 12 years with this issue of blood. She's thinking, if I could just touch the hem of his garment. She touches the hem of his garment. And Jesus turns and he says to her, Daughter, take heart. Listen to this. Your faith has healed you. I think stories that Jesus gives to us here are what I call, they're, they're for edge standards. Any person who's at the edge, they're meant to have them be like the guy who rushed by me and another one put his hand on my shoulder. They're meant to encourage us to trust what's going on in our lives and put it in the hands of Jesus. I think they're encouraged for us, even in the areas of healing, as we've been talking about this fact that Jesus still heals, to even trust Him in the fact that Jesus knows how to heal. He can heal again and again, we've seen physically. And more than that, He wants to heal us deep within who we are within our being and make us all that He has created us to be. And so here are these stories, one after another, for those of us who are standing at the edge. Now, I don't know what your edge is. I don't know what it is that you might be standing at the edge of and, and you're just wondering whether it's a, a, a relational difficulty or maybe it's a job situation or maybe it's a it's something to do with your future direction or maybe it's to do with the person that has hurt you and you need to get things right with or it could be a whole lot of things. And maybe it's illness. And God and has you at the edge and and. As this story shows us, there are some things about faith he wants us to learn. So let me read the story. Matthew says it succinctly. And again, as I've been saying week after week, Matthew groups these together topically. He's not worried and concerned about the actual chronological arrangement of it compared to the other Gospels. But I think when we come to these two stories, because they're not found in any of the other Gospels, it may be that this occurred chronologically. There's a good chance that Jesus, as He's walking home from the home of Jairus, as it says here in verse 27, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed Him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when He had gone indoors, the blind men actually came indoors with him. And they came to Jesus and he asked them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. And then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, it'll be done to you. And their sight was restored. And Jesus warned them sternly. He's looking at these guys and he says, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. And while they're going out, here's here's what's kind of cool. The first thing they see after Jesus in this warning is another guy in line who's deaf. And while they're going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk, he was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowd was amazed and said, it's kind of this mumbling was going on in the crowd. Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. These are the common people. These are the people of Israel who are broken and needy. And they're amazed at this rabbi, this teacher who's who's doing these things. And they're they're going like that. And then there's a group of Pharisees who, who are losing their place of authority. They're losing their place of being the righteous ones. There's someone more righteous who's breaking their rules. And they look at. Jesus, and it says in verse 34, the Pharisees said, and this is the first time it's stated in Matthew, this line of reasoning, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. And this can't be a work of God. He's not toned the line the way we like to see it towed. So what do we learn from this? Well, the first thing I look at is, is faith being tested. The first thing I want you to, to notice here is how often When you come to Jesus and you stand at the edge, you may stand at the edge for a while, so to speak, before anything ever happens. There's a reason sometimes, and we're not really fully aware. Have you ever wondered why it isn't that the first time you cried out with all your heart, at least you thought you were, and maybe the second, third, or fourth time you cry out to God, and maybe it's been a month, or maybe it's been a year, or maybe it's been two years, or maybe it's been ten ten years, and, and you're crying out to God, and you say, God, why don't you answer? I've been at the edge of this place for a long time. And if we look at this passage, you'll find it's helpful, I think, and pretty instructive because you get this idea of faith being, being tested and being tried and, and, and being stretched. If you look closely at the account, it says the two blind men fouled him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. I mean, you've probably all experienced this to some degree. These are two beggars, in a sense, that are following behind Jesus. And it may have been as Jesus was leaving from Jairus' home where this daughter of, of Jairus has just been raised from the dead and news is out and they're going, wow, this is incredible. There's a line of people going, maybe for me now. And so these two guys who are blind, they're thinking, "Hey, I've got to get, get some of this. They're, they grab the cloak of someone as they begin to follow Jesus because there's a crowd often following Jesus. And as they're following Jesus, you can see the one guy holding on to the to the cloak of the other guy and another guy and they're they're going along and they're going jesus you know have have mercy on a son of david have mercy on us and you ever felt that kind of thing I, I remember when i worked in miami fort lauderdale area when i would come go from the airport to one of the places i was working often there would be these street corners there'd be people They were homeless or there were people who were on the edge and they're pandering and they wanted money and they would stand there and they'd have maybe a bag or a, a box or whatever a bucket and and, and you would, they would be worn and they'd be torn and they'd be standing there and, and you know you're in the car and you just don't want to look because they're basically saying have mercy on me. Or maybe you've had that happen if you've walked down and you've been in Minnesota and you maybe downtown or something like that and if you, you walk by and someone's crying out you're just saying come on a couple bucks just a couple bucks for a cup of coffee you have that experience? Uh, that, I just get that in your mind. Here is Jesus He's walking away and these, these guys are going have mercy on the Son of David. And they keep following. And Jesus, think about it. These kids are blind. It's hard enough to follow. And Jesus keeps going on His way. I mean, you kind of go, insensitive, isn't He? I mean, why in the world? I mean, just turn and say, you know, be healed. But He goes on His way. And they're calling out, Son of David. It's interesting they call it Son of David. Uh, They're not calling out Rabbi. They're not calling out His first name, Jesus. They're saying Son of David because there was this expectation after what has been happening. There's this line of of thought going around. Maybe this isn't just some Rabbi. Maybe this is the one we've been expecting, the Messiah, the one who comes from the line of David. So these guys, though blind physically, they see better than a lot of other people spiritually. They're not just saying Rabbi. They're not just saying good teacher. These are ones who, at least though they can't see physically spiritually, are getting some eyesight and they're yelling out, Son of David, this One we know is to come. This Messiah, would You have mercy on us? Because they believed that when the Son of David would come and the Messiah would come, He would come with gifts. The Kingdom of God would come with power be available to people. That was the whole promise of when Jesus would come, that, that power would now be available to His people. And so in Isaiah chapter 35, which I think kind of underlies what's going on here, Isaiah says to the people, in a sense, when this Messiah comes, this is what you need to do. He's talking to the people many years before, standing on the edge, so to speak. He says, strengthen your feeble hands. Steady your knees that want to give way. Say to those with fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf be unstopped. You see what's happening in Matthew? Here's two blind guys and a deaf guy. There's this expectation. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. So guys, strengthen your grip and steady your knees. And though you're blind, you do see spiritually. Hang on and follow. And have mercy it's just a cry. It's a very nonspecific one. It wasn't, you know, give us eyesight, Rabbi. It was just look at us, you know, mercifully do something for us. And so these beggars, as they follow, they take a whole lot of steps and follow Jesus all the way to his house. And they don't give up. And it says that when Jesus went indoors, the blind men came in as well. Is, is that amazing faith? They didn't they didn't even get up. It's, it's interesting to me is you have this this these guys who are hanging on to the edge and they're they're walking and they're following behind Jesus. And just imagine if they had gotten just a few blocks down, maybe a couple blocks from his home. They've been holding on the whole time. And let's give these guys names. Let's just let's make, say they're Norwegian since there's some Norwegian here, you know, always holding on. And and he's saying to Sven, Sven, let's forget it. He's not listening. I'm I'm going to let go. Sven's going, hang on. Don't let go. Ah, but I think I should let go. Can you imagine if they let go? But they didn't. They hung on. Uh, Scripture tells us often, our faith will be tried and tested. Our faith will be stretched like a muscle. God doesn't act right away in our situations and they hang on and they did what jesus taught many times when he would say always pray and not give up it starts a parable that way there's um, stories that have been telling about people within our church who have experienced healing and and god has worked in their life and I, it's been kind of fun to to kind of riddle into each of these messages stories of people who are either in our church or connected very closely to our church and just this last week, um, D, our administrative assistant, sent out a note from Joe and Casey Burquist, and some of you may have gotten that, their little daughter, Emily. Emily has a very rare disease called fever, F-E-V-R, which means, and so you doctors have grace on me, familial, executive, vitreo, retinopathy. That's close, okay? Let's just use it, fever, F-E-V-R. She has fever eye. And it's something that's genetic. And when it shows up young and it actually becomes active, it's a very dangerous thing. Because it shuts the blood flow off to the, to the retina and, and it just causes, in some cases, um, total blindness. They write, we are back from Michigan with good news. Dr. Trace visited af- with us after the surgery and went over the photos. The left eye is stable. From the angiogram, he can see that there is minimal healthy blood flow. This was somewhat expected news. They were hoping that. That is one of the problems of what fever causes. He said that if this was her better eye, she'd be able to develop some um, usable ambulatory vision. But because it's her weaker eye, he said, it's a good candidate possibly for emerging microchip technology. So they're in this process. Now for the really good news. Emily's right eye looks fantastic. She has a lot of healthy vascular development from which Dr. Tess's Tone, um, from his tone, doesn't seem typical of a fever eye which has a significant radial fold. It's just not typical. He pointed to one section of the photo and said that it looks as if her eye is actually trying to form a new center of vision. The doctor said, I don't have the words to describe how good it is. We chalk it up, they say, to another miracle from the Lord. And I want to, he says, thank you for your continual prayers. Even the lady at the Avis counter was praying for us. He goes on to say, a healthy eye center of vision is called the macula. It's our HD vision. We use it when we look at a book, a person's face, or a stoplight. The rest of our vision is far lower density. He gives us an example. He says, look straight ahead, if you would. Let's say you're looking at a computer screen. And and if you hold up your hand out to the side with maybe three fingers and you're looking at this computer screen, keep staring at the screen, he says, can you count how many fingers you are holding up without looking away from the screen? If you can, you're cheating. (laughs) Your peripheral vision just doesn't have the resolution to give you a clear picture. This was the best we were thinking Emily would have for the rest of her life. This kind of vision. We had talked earlier in this journey about how it could be possible to grow a new macula in Emily's eye. And nobody had answers. We kept praying anyway. It just didn't seem a possibility. And in fact, he says, I remember a specific prayer from Casey at the dinner table one night when she just kind of blurted out and asked God to grow her Emily, a new macula. Now I think about it. Dang it. She should have asked him for two. (laughs) Gracious, merciful, loving. Take your pick. God has been all this to our family. Thanks to all the earnest prayers by you folks. And I can't thank you enough. Please, please, please. Keep them coming. I want to pray for her. I also want to invite you for just a moment, if there's someone in your heart that you've been praying for, would you also lift them up to the Lord? Father, we believe that you allow for us to hear these stories, to increase our faith, to generate faith. And so now, God, with the faith that's been generated, we ask that you would continue to heal Emily. We pray that you would come around that eye and and form that macula and form that eye to have good and perfect vision. And we would pray that also for the other eye. And Lord Jesus, I also bring these prayers that others are praying on behalf of themselves or maybe someone else as they stand at the edge. Amen. Well, you know, there's some other things that we learn in this story, but we'll close it here. No, um, I can't do that. There's a really another a couple of lessons, and one I really, really like a lot. It's this whole idea of faith being taught. There's this little line, verse 28, when he had gone indoors. Do you know that faith is... Is not just, It is a gift that's given. This incredible, wonderful, loving God begins to work in your life. You begin to see it through individuals and through things in your experience. And you begin to have your heart being warmed and turned and, and moved towards God. And the conditions are all ripe so that at a certain point, He births in you this trust that He is good and loving and kind. That through His Son, Jesus, He took all your sins and everything that was that keeping you from Him. And that He has given you, as a result of that, the ability to live with Him and to know Him and to walk with Him. And as a result of that, you, you begin to put your first bit of faith into him and as that faith is given you receive what god wants but what's really interesting is he also allows for that faith not just to be born given as a gift but he calls us to develop it he calls us to mature in it. he calls us to respond again and again as god continues to work and moves us towards the edge of cliffs he always calls us to take the next step and to follow him again that's why our mission is so simple. It's to help all people take their next step to know and follow Jesus. It's as simple as that. It's true for you and it's true for the people in your life. And so as you see this, God is always taking our faith and faith, friends, trust is a skill. It's something that as you do it, it builds relationship. It happens in marriages. When people become people who put trust and they become trustworthy and as they grow in that trust, it develops in such a way that God is able to allow them to experience more love and to remove fear out of their lives. It happens with parents to children when they become reliable and trust is developed. It happens with people who are leaders of organizations. It happens with pastors, with churches. It's this kind of thing. It's a skill that as you become a person of character and you develop that and you begin to see a per- become this person of integrity as you walk with God, He allows for your faith to develop and it is a skill that He wants them to grow in. So with the disciples, they're sitting in a boat. He's expecting them to some degree to grow in their faith. He's expecting them when He turns to them and His Oh, little faith. Haven't you seen enough that you should at least respond in some way different than, Oh, we're going to perish. You don't care about us. Okay. So He takes them indoors. Just before this, He's with Jairus. He's going to Jairus' daughter. He's walking to the home. As he comes to the home, there are people, professional mourners. These people do this for a living. They have come in. They have tested. They have found. They know for a fact that this daughter is dead. And Jesus, this rabbi, has the gall to walk along and declaim in faith from his father, no, she's not dead, she's sleeping. And they all laugh and mock him. I just think that's amazing. They're laughing at God. Yeah, right. There's no faith outside. And Jesus turns to Peter, James, and John. He says, you three of you guys, with the parents, come on into the room. He brings them indoors. Brings them into the room. Because part of what Jesus is doing, there's a whole lot of things, I won't go into all of them, but one of the things He's doing is He's developing their faith. He's taking this trust and developing the skill of what it means so that they can begin to do what He does. That they can also heal. They can actually move into situations and use this very power that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself through the Holy Spirit to touch situations and to see Them redeemed or restored. Now we have this idea, and and I believe so often in the church, we are on these different these different. um, ends of the spectrum where we are stand over here and we say, yeah, we believe God can do it, but we never step on faith. We're afraid because if we do and God doesn't follow through, we put His image into a position where He doesn't look good or we're afraid that if we don't do it, that somehow it's about our own faith and so we stand back here. It's a control fear position. Then we go to the other side where there are people who say, all you have to do is you believe about anything, just faith in anything. There's a demon under every rock. Every situation, all you have to do is apply faith and it's a control thing as well. And what God is calling us to do is to be people who are, who are walking in sensitivity and alignment with the Spirit so that God can do the things He wants to do in people's lives that He is directing us to do. And that is not something that we just naturally do. It's a tough position to be in because it calls for humility and it calls for a demonstration of complete faith and trust that the Holy Spirit does have the power to work through us in occasions to do things that we don't believe even He can do. See, we have this sense when it comes to the ministry of healing. We forget the fact that there is not just faith for the person who's standing on the edge. But think about it. Jesus had complete, whole faith. And yet he took people around him. And I believe part of what he was doing in those situations was training and teaching them, developing their faith so that they could listen and they could hear. And, and, it, and it was this opportunity to teach them the fact that sometimes what gets in the way of a person's healing and a person's deeper walk with God or, or even a physical healing is they have a, a lack of, 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 of forgiveness or there's bitterness that's occurred in their life or there's some kind of generational sin or there is something that has some kind, as I talked a number of weeks ago, demonic influence there are a lot of things and it takes a person to grow in, in discernment and understanding and development of faith so that as they grow in that they can apply those things and people can be free that's what i believe the church is called to do and to grow in but we have this idea that if we don't just aren't just like jesus and you just don't go like that then you can't do it i i heard i read a story um george will tells in one of the uh, i think it was newsweek magazine he was using this illustration for something else but i thought it was interesting He talks about an adolescent who came to Mozart, Mozart, this incredible um, composer. And he asked Mozart, Mozart, how do you compose symphonies? And Mozart said that because the lad was so young, perhaps, young man, you should consider composing ballads. But the young man, he objected, you wrote symphonies when you were only 10 years old it replied, yeah, and I didn't have to ask how either. We have this sense that if we just don't do it, we don't understand that faith, and it even comes around to this whole area of healing, is something that God develops in us. And so maybe instead of symphonies, he's just teaching us ballads. I don't even know what that means. But I think it means less than symphonies. I think it means with what the faith you have in you so that when someone else jumps off the edge, it builds your faith so that you do it. And once you do it, you have more faith for that to happen again and maybe someone else when God is working and demonstrating it. I really believe, folks, this is something so significant that God is calling us To move into and to understand that we have been given, as it says, the Messiah who has come with his power. And we're not in this camp where we just kind of, it's all about us and we have all the power, whatever you want to do. And it's not in this other side. We're so afraid to step on faith. We're so afraid that if we do this, we're going to mar God's image. But it's in this place that says, God, here we are. Here's who we are. Train us in faith. Help us at least begin to write ballads for your name and for your cause so that people will give glory to you. There's a whole lot of other things, and I'm not going to go into them all. There's a faith that's being perfected. I'll just run by this quickly. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him. And he asked, do you believe, says Jesus, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord. Those two guys replied. Here's Jesus. Jesus is so much about wanting us to understand more of who he is. It's not about doing a whole bunch of miracles. It's not about this stuff. It's about knowing who God is and how much God loves us and how much God can do in and through us. If you're holding back anything, it's like Don said, you know what? You won't experience all that God wants. You'll find yourself often falling back and coming back and falling back until you begin to say, God, here it is. I want you to have all of me. And I just want to say, if you're holding back, I, seriously, seriously. I just want to look you in the eyes and let the Holy Spirit work in your heart right now. If you're holding back, you're holding back on yourself and all that God wants to do for you or the people around you. Because He is incredibly loving and gracious. He will never seek to do anything that will bring harm to you. Now, He may cause sometimes hurt or He may cause sometimes testing and trials that you don't understand and you don't get this, but He has always your good long-term in mind. And so this idea of being perfected is Jesus has these guys come to him and he asks them a simple question because they get this spiritually. They're farther ahead than the other guys who have eyesight. They understand he's the son of David. But he says to them this, catch this, do you believe that I am able to do this? This is now moving from this Messiah, who is the line of David, who has come to rule us some political power. Now he's asking, do you believe I have the power, that I have the, the very presence of God and his Holy Spirit within me to come into your life, to personally change your life, do I have the power to do that? He's saying, not just believe that I'm the, the, the son of David, but do you believe I'm the son of God. And all that we're going through, when you're standing on the edge, it's always God is pushing. What He's pushing us towards is not to be about miracles and be about healings or be about this or that. He's pushing us towards this complete, continual, um, confident um, faith that He is who He says He is. He's God in flesh. He, we may not see Him, but He's here. He's present right now. And He's available to you and for you. So He perfects the faith. And then he shows us it's only faith that's required. That's what this meaning of the... He he touches his eyes and he says, again, the word, according to your faith, it will be done to you. And and it's very similar to the lady who was with the, the, the garment and the hem. When she touched him, he looks at her and says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. It's this idea that since you believe, it's not because you have a, um, an amount of faith according to the proportion of your faith. God wasn't saying through Jesus to these two blind guys, you know, you have enough faith to get 20-20 vision. You have enough faith for glasses. Uh-uh. He's just said faith itself enacts the power of God. It enacts the power of God. So faith is required. And the last thing he says is faith is, is challenged. He says sternly, five times only in the New Testament is this mentioned. Five times. Where, where Jesus, this word sternly is used. And it's a really violent verb. I, you could go through and look at these different passages if you find a commentator. It's very interesting. But what God is doing is He looks these two guys through the eyes of Jesus. He looks in these two blind men's eyes. He's basically saying, listen, guys, what I'm here to do is restore my kingdom and to come into a relationship with you people to, so that you can have the Holy Spirit and do the works of God so that you will live in relationship rightly with Him, forgiven, in His mercy, loving, growing in the character of Christ, becoming like me with all kinds of love, faith, and all the things that go with it. And he's looking at me saying, don't not mess that up and go out and let people think I'm just a miracle worker. I'm here for a political reason. I just want to let you guys know you've been given a gift through faith. Now in obedience, hear this and walk in it. Now, think about it. That's got to be incredibly hard because God sometimes comes to us. He does something. We're so excited about it. We're walking with him. And then he comes to us and he says, now I want you to do this. And he challenges our faith in such a way that we go, this doesn't make sense. These guys were blind. Don't you think they've got to run out and tell everybody? I don't get it, except for Jesus at times will call us to do some things that challenge us to the bone in obedience. And when we don't, we're not just messing up our life, we're potentially touching people's lives around us. And so then he says, if you look at the last part of this, it's what I call the responses. And faith responds by actually doing this. You're at the edge, and you take the other foot, and your weight falls, and you fully commit yourself into that sense of I give it away. I'm, I don't have the control. I just place myself fully into the fall or fully into your arms. But if you look at the different responses, when it says that when they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowd, listened to the response, the crowd was amazed and said, wow, this is incredible. It is really possible to see God work, to touch His presence, to be in a place like this where I really believe the Holy Spirit's at work right now in people's hearts. And to know the conviction of the Holy Spirit and and kind of go, wow, that was amazing. And just be a spectator and never step over the edge that God's calling you to step over. Or it can go the other direction because there can be people sitting here and there are throughout all throughout history where you're like, it's as the Pharisees said, yeah, they're cynical, yeah. This guy, this whole thing that you know the spirit is moving here and talking about, this isn't of God. Have you you know he's not by this and this and, and this rule and I got this, you know, section one A two B he didn't do this properly. Yeah, this guy is not doing the works of God, even though it looks like it. Or it can be the response that Matthew's looking for throughout every one of these stories where you just go, Okay, God, I'm at the edge. We're at the church, I think, on an edge where we can see God do great things. I don't know what it means for you, but where are saying just you got to step it. you got to step out. I'm going to ask the band to come. We're going to sing in just a moment, but let me just share this last story because I think it says so well what this active commitment is all about. The sun was coming up, and this motorcycle officer, he was moving smoothly through the Los Angeles traffic. It was a quiet day. He was in the suburbs. He's on his way to work. Okay. As he neared an intersection, a red pickup truck rushed through that intersection without even stopping for that sign that was there, the stop sign. The officer turned on his flashing light and radioed to the station kind of nonchalantly that he was in pursuit of a red vehicle. And as his unit pulled up behind the slowing truck, the officer was thinking, ah, this fellow's probably late for work. But unknown to the officer, the driver of the pickup had moments before robbed an all-night grocery store. And on the seat beside the driver was a paper bag with the money and gun he had used. And as he's slowing his vehicle over, the driver's thinking the cop knows already. This guy's scared, and he's resting his hand on the gun. As the truck pulled to the side of the roadway and stopped, the officer parked his motorcycle and approached the driver's side of the pickup. He was relaxed. Good morning, sir. May I see your... That's all the farther he got. He didn't even get to finish the sentence. The driver stuck his arm out from the truck and fired the weapon. The uh, The barrel of the gun actually was only two inches from the officer when he fired it. And the bullet hit the officer in the center of the chest. He was knocked to the ground almost seven feet away. For a few moments, everything was just quiet. And then to the horror of the gunman, the officer slowly stood to his feet. In shock, this this, this driver can't believe it. He goes, this guy must be Clark Kent. And so in shock, um, the policeman getting up begins to brush the dirt off his uniform. And, And then after a few seconds, he comes to his wits and understands what just happened. And he pulls out his service revolver. He fires two rounds into the side of the truck, and the first round went through the open window and shattered the, the front window. And the second round went through the side of the door and actually ripped into the leg of the driver of the truck. Don't shoot, screamed the terrified robber as he threw out the money and the gun. The officer's life had been spared because he was wearing a bulletproof vest. And these vests are incredibly strong. Even though they're about three-eighths of an inch, in in depth they are made of dozens of layers of what is called an extremely strong material called kevlar let me share with you another story a few months later another officer ray hicks and his partner went to serve a search warrant on a well-known drug dealer in the city of inglewood as his partner knocked hicks yelled out police and hicks began to kick down the door And from inside the shabby apartment, four slugs were fired right through the door, and one found its mark. The impact was almost exactly where the motorcycle officer had been hit only a few weeks before, squarely in the center of his heart. Later, his partner recalled that as Hicks was falling, he said quietly, I'm hit. The coroner reported that the policeman lived less than a minute. The bolt had... Ruptured an artery and blood to the brain had been stopped almost instantly. Police officer Ray Hicks was 27 years old. He left a wife and three children behind. He also left behind, in the trunk of his car, just 30 feet away, a bulletproof vest. Every police officer in Los Angeles, they believe in bulletproof vests because they know they work. In fact, I doubt there's a policeman anywhere who doesn't believe that those vests can save lives. But guess what? Knowing that isn't enough. See, belief is not about just knowing. Belief that those things actually work isn't enough. An officer must do more than just believe in the vests. They must actually take the belief to the point of personal commitment. They must actually choose to put it on and to wear it even when it's hot, even when it's uncomfortable. For Ray Hicks, life and death was the difference of one little step. And that step was he had known a bunch of things, but he failed to act on the one thing that would have changed his entire life. There are people, you may be, someone who has known a whole lot about God, about His truth. You may have been in the church since you were a kid. I don't care what it is, but you're at the edge. And God's calling you to do something that is really tough because you're afraid. And yet you've seen people push and rush by you. And the difference, like for Hicks, that would change the life was one little step of doing and acting upon what he knew to be true. This past week, I had an opportunity to meet with someone that God has been kind of pushing me and, and challenging me to get reconciled with. And there's all kinds of stuff around it. But, and I don't know what will happen, but I just knew in my soul after it was done, this hard, incredible step, like stepping off the edge, that God was glorified. I don't know what your edge is. But knowing requires that you actually act if you want to experience the power of God.